Our second talk tonight on this uh, really controversial, vexed question. So, um, as I think I said to somebody tonight, this is a journey for us all, me included. Um, and uh, it is a question for our times, I think, as I said last week, because um, once you move the gospel, as people inexorably are, into a broader creational view, you immediately eventually have to hit this question of the traditional doctrines of hell, which are really nasty doctrines. Um, and last week, what I tried to do is um, lay out the landscape. Uh, this week, I want to move into the territory of developing alternative hypotheses, um, still using essentially the, um, the same approaches to trying to expand our thinking. And the, the critical thing last time I talked about was the question you ask really matters. So um, uh, I finished last time by saying um, essentially the question that we often ask, and we is not just Christians, it's plenty of non-Christians because they get the message that this is extreme inclusion-exclusion. Um, and uh, the doctrine of hell actually requires zero revelation. That's one of its problems. Everybody kind of gets it. Um, and um, the, the question that everybody asks is that kind of question. It's an undercurrent question. You know, what's my fate? Is there life after death? Do I go to hell, etc.? What I said last time was um, actually that question almost never occurs in the Bible. It's a perspective the Bible doesn't seem to have, which in itself is, is a, a clue to us that there is a paradigm that we're missing. Um, a better question was the one that I finished on last time, which is, uh, which is what I'll take as the launching pad uh, for this talk, which is the question that's occupied my mind for many years. When I say occupied it, I mean in a, in a very fruitful way. And that is the question that was the climax of the one of the longest, probably the longest, I think, sermon recorded that we have in the Acts of the Apostles by Stephen the Martyr. And he goes through the history of Israel. And the climax is God doesn't dwell in temples made with the hands of men. Where is the place of my rest? What house will you build me? That's the question at which they actually rise up and stone what house will you build me? And that is a very biblically endorsed question. So that's where we'll start from and, and expand. So um, I'll begin uh, by a bit of a recap. Um, won't take long. And um, I'll take hell off the table. I am convinced it is a distorted mythology. The word bad, the actual word is not a Greek word, it comes out of like Norway, 12th, 13th century mythology. I mean, Norway, that's the world of Hamlet and Denmark, you know, they had a dark mind. And um, with it came this kind of freight train of kind of spookiness. And it's not the word used in the Bible. It's a really bad translation. And I think we can take it off the table. That is, hell has endless torment. I'm utterly convinced of that. What we put back on the table is what I try and build, and I'll run through that. I'm, 
um, as to where the position I will put forward. Um, the positive positions I'm still sort of in two minds about in some ways, uh, but I'm pretty sure that this endless torment of hell is a fiction. Yeah. Um, I will then move on to positive territory and uh, unpack that for the whole of this talk uh, the metaphor of the house, the house of God, and um, I will pursue it particularly with this question of what does it um, tell us about this word judgment, which is another big word that we need to actually be very, very careful about. And I'm going to give you a new paradigm for that word. Um, as I think we said in the, in the talk, you can almost go two ways with judgment. One is punitive. It's a part of a judicial system. There is another entirely alternative way, which is restorative. We all live in the middle of that with our whole jail system. Like, do we put people in jail to punish them or to rehabilitate them? I mean, we're, as human beings, we're in the middle of that kind of tension. Um, the... Uh, uh, I had a fascinating uh, talk on the plane um, uh, recently. Sat next to a man who uh, we, we we began talking for one reason or another, and um, it turned out that uh, he had led the complete transformation of the, of the, of the South Australian workers' compensation system. And, and liability system. Uh, and he'd led it from a system of uh, essentially um, vast debt over, so I think he said a half a billion dollars, unfunded liabilities, uh, total mess to a surplus that was not just a financial success, but was getting people to work far faster. A, a real transformation of which you know, anyone would be proud um, there are various drivers of that, but one driver was he moved, the old system was an adversarial system based upon judicial rights, right and wrong. It was like a punitive system. And that had led, that had led to this absolute dysfunctionality. The new system was kind of bounded grace. Explained it to me, you know, so essentially, if you're injured, no questions, bang, here's a lump sum. Two years, you know, it was, but within that, so there was boundaries, but it was, I, I could only call it bounded grace. So he was using the legal system as a system for restoration of human lives, and it was a very good system. It's a small metaphor for, in our design, we understand, I suppose, the alternative ways one can use a, a judicial system, but we know from experience that the great ones that are transformative move towards a restorative rather than the punitive meaning of that word. So um, uh, let's, let's now um, dive into this. I, I will also foreshadow where I'll go uh, the next time because I'm actually going to do two more talks. Um, the next time I will take this debate um, really further and I will... Uh, I will pick up where I'm going to end. Um, uh, as you know, um, Bentley Hart, David Bentley Hart, who um, several of us here have read, who's read some of Bentley Hart or heard him? 
Yeah, really, well, I was about to say it's really worth it, but then I stopped myself. He's kind of, uh, he's not exactly unreadable. He's just very, very, he's very, but he's so much fun on the new atheists. Um, <laughs> I read the introduction of his book of essays where he has to, he says, look, my style, I'm not going to apologise. I really love ripping people apart. It makes a good prose. And um, particularly the new ethicists like Peter Singer, he says they're wretched, wretched <laughs> off he goes. He's a lot of fun. But um, uh, he really, I think, is quite justly, interestingly, um, probably becoming the most prominent apologist for the faith in the public press because he's so smart and so eloquent. So there's no way he's a shrinking violet about faith. But his position is uh, become quite controversial with his new translation of the New Testament, which essentially has taken the word eternal out as a mistranslation. Um, and he's corrected. It's obvious he's right about that. I don't think anyone really can argue with his point of view. Um, and uh, done the same with the word hell. Um, so um, he says, and I think, I think he's right, our position, our traditional position on hell is really the legacy of St. Augustine. I, I don't think that's that arguable. Calvin really picked up St. Augustine's theories and the theory of hell was the one theory the Reformation didn't really change from medieval Catholicism. Uh, the great opponent uh, in a sense, they didn't, they didn't really know each other, but they were rough at the same time. Uh, alternative thinker was Gregory of Nyssa. Um, and essentially, Bentley Hart said, there are your choices, stark choices between Gregory of Nyssa and St. Augustine. So I'll, I thought it would be fun next time. I'll take you down the, in some detail on the world of St. Augustine and Gregory of Nyssa. So, okay. I'll, I'll try to spare you the uh, onerous duty of trying to read them. Um, um, but I've certainly been reading a lot of them, and particularly of Gregory of Nyssa, which, you know, he's definitely epic. Um, so that's what we'll do the, on the next talk. The talk after that, the final one, is a kind of a so what talk, which is if you want to move down towards the end of the spectrum of uh, either universal salvation or hell not being there, if you want to move down that end of the spectrum, what does that do for a lot of things like evangelism, the church, and etc.? Really interesting. I've got very, very strong, not just views on that, but personal experiences. So that's how we'll finish up. Um, and um, so uh, we're seeing through a glass darkly. I said that last time. That's always true because we're peering not just into eternity. We're peering outside the matrix of the world we live in. Um, I, my goal today is to help us all, me included, see a bit better through the glass <coughs> and in particular to leave us with a bigger hope and a bolder faith that actually we build a stronger picture of, no matter what views we have, end up having a stronger picture of uh, the world to come and the project of which we're part. As my dear wife said to me when I was talking to her about it, actually you're just exploring the prayer of Jesus, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Enormously evocative words. I'm also picking up a challenge Tom Wright threw out. Interestingly, in the, in the essay, he, he and uh, Bentley Hart threw stones at each other over their translations. It's quite fun to read. 
um, read, read that um, and read between the lines in it. But um, in the article where Bentley Hart, he uh, sorry, Tom Wright criticised Bentley Hart's translation that was stirring up the hornet's nest. He got back more than more than he bargained for, and so Bentley Hart wrote a criticism of him. Um, but there's a lot of middle ground between them. It, it, reading between the lines, there's a lot of middle ground between them. And one thing Tom Wright said in that article really stuck in my mind. We need a better way of expressing the Jewish and early Christian two ages doctrine in clear English. We've been so stuck in this binary heaven and hell world, it's just shut down our imagination and our vocabulary, which the Bible's got tons of, if we unlock it, of this kind of what he calls the two ages doctrine. Now, the word ages is, is the word fraternal. So in Tom Wright's translation, he, he mostly ditches eternal for age to come, aenos, so that the actual Greek adjective is the same word we get eon from. And we all know what eon means. It means an age. And it hasn't much changed. It's got a variety of meanings for some kind of generational dispensation. Not really about time. But anyway, I think that's a really good challenge, this sort of, I think our imagination, mine included, uh, really could, could benefit from a far better illumination of the world to come. Um, so that's what we'll do. This was the landscape um, that I put before of choice. Left-hand side is the kind of hell as eternal torment to the right-hand side. Uh, extreme extreme right-hand side, um, I actually have changed the word because the more traditional word is universal salvation. That's what actually Gregory generally believed, not the only one, which is at the end of it all, everything God has made and every creature God has made will be redeemed. Um, I prefer the phrase cosmic redemption. Um, universal salvation is almost a... Uh, a bit of a pejorative phrase um, to say, because uh, it has the connotation of, well, everyone gets off Scots free. Um, and that's not what I think I would say. Um, cosmic redemption is a fantastic phrase, very biblical, which is the redemption of the entire cosmos is the end of the game. Now, the middle phrase, so-called conditionalists believe uh, essentially that those who are, for whatever reason, not included in the kingdom, lose life. It's extinction, so the loss of life. My, my personal view, very strongly now, as I've said, is hell's off the table. Um, somewhere the truth is in between here. I think that's the kind of choices we've got. And, and I am going to advance the cosmic redemption, universalist view. If you were to push me uh, and say, how certain are you of these things? I'd say, uh, I'm 100% certain that the hell eternal torment is wrong. I'm kind of 70, 30 over here. <laughs> Something, does that make sense? <laughs> but you will notice this big word judgment. Now, let's just foreshadow this. Gregory of Nyssa as one example and Peter Sterry were incredibly confronting in their sermons about the good life and the holy life. What they actually did was they really put in what I used to know as purgatory. In other words, there is an after-death judgment zone, huge in scope. 
So that, so that's that's where they go to sort of solve the question of how does accountability work for those who have not been true. So that's why I've written the word judgment in there, and it's kind of ascending because, frankly, their view of judgment ends up being bigger than ours. In a funny way, the evangelical gospel shrinks the concept of judgment and accountability. Anyway, that's where we're going. The vertical axis is really important, which is uh, there's a free will and predestination axis. In other words, if you go down the left, bottom left, you get Calvin and St. Augustine where the whole doctrines of grace become pretty sinister because if God chose me to be saved, he chose you to burn in hell forever. And it's just an incomprehensibly awful doctrine. Can't get... The, the good, I mean, even Bentley Hart says at least Calvin was true to himself. He didn't fudge it, at least. Okay. Interestingly, the, the people I'm talking about, Greg, they believed in God's sovereignty as much. So that led them into the cosmos. How can God's intentions ever be thwarted? Was, so they, they were not actually free will people in quite the same. They, they had an enormous view of God's sovereignty, but they thought it it had to be uh, finalised in, in some kind of redemption, a universal self, salvation or cosmic redemption. So that's where we'll go today. Um, so uh, I think if I put it that way, it becomes pretty obvious. Hell is not the house God is building. Um, the thought that, of God spending enormous efforts to construct hell as some eternal barbecue is sort of... Just such a, a contradiction in terms, it's almost impossible to conceive of. Um, so this is really a summary of what I implied last time. Uh, it's actually an unbiblical concept, got very little going for it, as unending torment, um, based on mistranslation, um, really only mentioned by Jesus, never mentioned by Paul. You mentioned the Thessalonians one, I've done more research, I think that's quite handleable. Um, never mentioned by Paul, never mentioned in any of the sermons in the Acts of the Apostles. It's just not on their landscape. They do not talk about it the way we talk about it. And hugely outweighed by the texts that imply universal salvation. It's kind of like when you get a new car, you know, and suddenly you find miraculously everybody else is driving your car. You see it everywhere. And the universal salvation texts are like that. I mean, the most notable is probably Romans 5, but there's plenty of them where actually uh, the concept that God will save all humanity is explicitly stated. Old Testament as well. There's dozens of them, far more than any hell ones. But by this sort of dominance of the hell world, they're just not mentioned or, or talked of. Um, and I'm not going to go over that again because I talked about it last time. Uh, I think everybody who's thought about it recognises that this man's mistranslation is fed by platonic thinking of, of, the, of immortality. Um, it, it, you know, the concept of hell fell on really bad philosophical soil um, of platonic thinking, and that actually, uh, in, a, in a sense... Um, gave the doctrine of hell a whole framework to grow into. But if you take the Platonic framework away, it doesn't have much to grow on. The Jews, the Jews did not believe in the inherent immortality of the soul. There's no question about that whatsoever. 
And Tom Wright's made that book, made that point, I think, very powerful in his book on the resurrection of the Son of God. Even resurrection, it only dawned on them toward the latter part of the revelation of the Old Testament as a possibility. It was more extinction. Like, you know, the, the grass withers, the flower fades. That's us. So live your life well now. It's sort of... Um, the third one, I think we, we all enjoyed my reading of James Joyce, that it's also fed by pathology. There's no question that the concept of hell is fed by pathologies of guilt, misanthropy and fear. Unfortunately, very true of St. Augustine, for those of you who've read his Confessions, which has got some phenomenal bits in it, by the way. It's just that he was a tormented soul. I've thought about this one for years, that hell involves a logical contradiction. Um, eternal death and eternal life, like how, like life is a category. How can death be eternal? It's you're actually equalising good and evil. This is really important point. I'll build on last next time. Um, and and there's this. It's a Manichaean concept that was rejected by the church as a heresy. That was heavily. I mean, Saint Augustine was converted out of it. He never got out of it in my mind. He ne- you'd agree with that. Yeah, he never got out of his Manichaean good evil two forces, and they're fighting with each other, and they're kind of equal. Well, if you go, who's been to Bali? and seen all the shrines with all the tablecloths with the crisscrosses on them? You've seen all the, you know, all the idols and, and uh, have a tablecloth with a black and white crisscross? That's Manichaean. That's, that is a straight good evil. We went to a play about it. I mean, forces of good, forces of evil, who's going to win? <coughs> that is not the all-consuming God who's good. All right, so... And the last point is that all of this was intensified by the Reformation and Calvin. As I mentioned before, um, the Reformation did not in any way adapt or refine the doctrine of hell. Adapted and refined many other of the Catholic doctrines, not that one. So um, my purpose is not to continue on that, just to kind of get it out of the way. Um, The other point that uh, we, we talked about, this is a very important diagram I'm going to build on, is that the hell question actually doesn't reframe our thinking. It sort of starts in the redemption zone of the life of humankind on the planet and the fate of my soul. It doesn't really do much for the broader question of life in the public space the life of the nations, the life of politics. But the Bible says a great, great deal about those spaces. Yes. And it's doesn't, it, it kind of pushes God into an, an, another zone of heaven. So that's really a platonic split between upstairs and downstairs that, um, that frankly, the, you know, hell just is, a, is an exit door downwards or upwards. So it doesn't reframe our thinking. What it does is it turns the gospel into a question of access. In the door, out of the door. And it narrows the range of hope to heaven. So in a way, it's, it's come with a package of ideas with a pretty narrow view of what on earth the end game might be. Really importantly, it assumes heaven is static territory. Like it's God's perfect place, no changes, just a question of whether I get there or not. I don't know if you've ever absorbed that, but this is only as I was preparing this talk, did this clarify for me? That's what it assumes. 
And it's God's domain, not ours, which we're entering. And finally, it really puts God rather separately, as in Richard Raw's very good phrase, the critical spectator with the big exam book and uh, the code of ethics by which we're judged as to whether we get in or out. And he's outside our system of creation. I mean, that's really the, the mental model I grew up with in my you know, younger years of faith. Um, now, if we go to this broader question, uh, it'll, my, my aim is actually to broaden the horizons of our thinking. As I said last time, um, all questions come out of a paradigm. If anyone asks you a question, the trouble with a question is you'll get an answer to it. This is really important. I mean, my, my whole life, by the way, is questions, because that's what we do in facilitating workshops, to expand people's thinking or not. Give you an example of this, the power of questions. A friend of mine used to be the head of safety for Rio Tinto globally, South African, wonderful larger-than-life character. He told me the story about the power of the mind to this person in South Africa and in this mining organisation that people just generally didn't like. So they thought they'd play a game on. He came into work and the first person who saw him said, you okay? I wasn't so good today. See, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. Walked on. The uh, next person said, oh my God, you look awful. You all right? I'm just telling you. By the time he got to the fifth person, he had to check into the sick boat. Because he found the answer to the question. He had to go home sick because everyone was asking him, what's wrong with you? And he went, if I ask you that question, you'll find an answer. Um, and um, that is actually a framework of a huge book on a, a more beautiful question because we tend to ask those questions of each other. Why are you failing? Why are you no good? How could you do better? I'll find an answer to that. And positive psychology has found that if I ask you different questions like, why were you successful when you did that? You'll find an answer to that. So questions really matter. Um, so let's let's just kind of forget for the moment this whole uh, yeah question of the the direct question. Let's go into what house. The first thing is that this is an absolutely ubiquitous metaphor that governs the entire Bible. Um, it's not casual. It begins in Genesis 1 and 2, and John Walton, for those who heard, of, heard him speak, essentially said the concept of the cosmos as the house of God is the governing motif of Genesis 1 and 2. God is building a house. The house is the cosmos. That house metaphor then governs Israel's entire life with a temple and the tabernacle. I am tabernacling with you. I am living with you. Then, stunningly, it is appropriated by Jesus to himself, my body. I am the temple of God and his resurrection. It's not just him in his, it's actually in his resurrection state. It's then amplified to the church regularly. We are the building of God. We are the house of God. And it climaxes in Revelation with the new Jerusalem. So this is not a casual metaphor. Those are just some examples, you, you know, you just find in between and the Psalms are absolutely replete with this. So it's a governing metaphor. A governing metaphor to typify what God is doing. It is a far, far more 
governing metaphor than redemption, forgiveness, salvation, sacrifice. This is a great quote by John in his latest book, which is uh, Old Testament Theology for Christians, which takes it further and essentially says, don't think of the house as a physical structure. Think of it as a set of functions. We need to ask what the ancients meant by existence. They think differently from how we do. For them, the focus is not materiality, but order. If we use the metaphor of a corporation, so now he said the house of God could be the corporation of God, the organisation of God. The corporate founder would be considered creator. So God is now like CEO architect, but so would the CEOs who succeeded him or her. As each one reorganised the company and its structure under his or her control the construction of buildings would have relatively little significance in the founding of the corporation. What he's saying is that the concept of the cosmos as the house of God, don't think physics, don't think molecules, don't think nature, think function, think role, think drama. That's, he, and the reason that John, sorry, I'm just going to turn the The reason that John said that is not a casual literary point, but that was the worldview of the ancients. He, uh, he, he gave a great example of this to make it really real. I don't know if you remember it, John Walton. Um, the example was if we were watching a play, so we're watching a play, and uh, I arrive late, I arrive 30 minutes late, and I sneak down and I sit beside someone in the third row and I say, what's going on here? <laughs> uh, the modern person would say, well, we're sitting in a theatre that's built of 300,800 bricks. Uh, the bricks were actually constructed in a quarry across the road and these chairs are made of pl plastic. That's how, the, that's how we moderns would answer, as if we're really smart, because we're in the age of science. Whereas the ancients would say, well, we're in the first act of the play. That character is doing this, and that character is doing that, and we're moving, and, the, and, the, and we've got all these questions evolving. So the ancient world was more about function. So uh, the the invitation is that we should think of creation like that, and the, and the house of God metaphor is inviting us to think of function. Well, I think that, I think that's all. I'm going through a lot of stuff here. You could you could I think about I think about that slide so much. I mean, I was with a young man today, I won't mention, from one of the biggest corporations in Australia, who built a vast part of their empire in a far-flung place in the world. I won't mention it too much because it's so well known. Um, and this young guy was talking about including the local people in the procurement system. He was talking about helping this country get on its feet. Yeah, that's what building a corporation is about. That's what building a cosmos is about. And we're involved in those things. And that's very close to this house of God metaphor. However, this next slide is, to me, it has been breathtaking for 20 years in my life, which is God actually changes the question. Stephen doesn't really get the question right when he says, what house can we build for God? God changed the question in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it turns out who's building the house and who am I building the house for? Do you remember the story? But David said, I want to build a house for you. What does God say to him through Nathan? I'm going to build you a house. I'm building you a house. God is building a house for us. The cosmos is for us, which is just almost too humbling and breathtaking for us to contemplate. Um, so... This is, to me, one of the most stunning reversals in the Bible. I mean, when I say stunning reversal, it begins to humble us as to what a God we have, how, how much he loves us, how much he is willing to subordinate, in a way, himself to our hands. He's building a house for us, not a small one either. <clears throat> More importantly, if we were to be specific, since Jesus is the son of David, he's building it for his son. So we can see the cosmos now to be more precise as a gift of the father to the son. You must hang on to that if you understand Ephesians. If you have any hope of understanding Ephesians chapter 1, you've got to go into the intimate councils of the Trinity. And we are involved in those councils. But we're an offshoot of them. It's the, the gift of the Father to the Son of His dear love. There's a strange, Paul prays an epic prayer. Epic prayer. As I've mentioned before, I've learned Ephesians 1 off by heart and I regularly say it to myself in the morning in the gym or across training. Um, three things he prays for the church. That you might know the hope of your calling, the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. You can see how this house of God metaphor helps us understand that prayer. But there's a part of that prayer that I always used to trip up on, which it says the second part, the riches of his inheritance in the saints. It doesn't say our inheritance in him. His inheritance in us. But we are the gift of the Father to the Son. Uh, and, and so we are involved in a divine love affair between the Father and the Son, expedited by the Holy Spirit. The gift to the Son is in his role as the head of all humanity. We are included in the Son. And hence the rest of Ephesians that puts us in the body. What this does is very, very important. And this last slide, again, just a few words, but really you need to think about them for a long time. It centralises the incarnation above the resurrection, above the crucifixion. The crucifixion is a subset of the incarnation. Just to make it stark for you, one of Irenaeus's great points is it would have been necessary for Jesus to be incarnate with or without sin. That was part of his breathtaking picture of the incarnation. So obviously that's something we can explore for a long while, but it actually is um, clearly coming from a very big picture of God's connection with us through the, through the Son, Jesus. 
So unpacking 2 Samuel 7, this house is for you. Um, I'm building it, which was a very, very central prayer in the life of David and Nathan. We can see that the house of God is a really uh, wondrous picture of God's enormous love for us. What this does is it enlarges the landscape very, very much. This is a diagram of, um, a more sophisticated diagram of the scope of the work of God. Um, for those on the tape, we'll put this up on the, web, on the website. But it actually layers, the, layers creation into you know, four zones. I just, like, why four, not five, I'm not sure. But the point is there's more than one. The bottom zone is us, our humanity, which is the redemptive story. Morality, sin, death. And yeah, that's the, let's just call that the typical evangelical story. But the zone above that, I think, is far more dominant in the scriptures than we realise. The zone of the word is nations. How are you governing the earth? Hugely important in Psalms. I think the majority of Jesus' parables, particularly the tough ones, are to the nations. And it's about the corporate responsibility of what you guys are doing with my great gift for you, politically, socially. Now, nothing will drive this home to you like reading the book of Daniel. One of my all-time is just an epic transformational book. You know, he calls Nebuchadnezzar to account because you are not ruling justly. Not, not Israel. You're not ruling Babylon justly. And uh, this theme of the accountability of anyone in authority to, to be just is, is massive. Above that, there's another zone, which is the whole created order. Matter, physics, stars. The created order causes us enormous problems causes earthquakes and tsunamis and just being in the world of matter is, is a challenge. And the top one is, by the way, the zone that Bentley Hart thinks is the most important. He thinks it's the dominant zone in Paul's theology. Now, whether he's right or not, I don't know to go that extra, but he's dead right in we've all missed or underestimated, which is there appears to be an epic battle with the principalities and powers and the rulers of the prince of the air. And that is, is, the, is, is the heart of the battle between that God is involved in. So, so, so I, I mean, I'm, I've always, what, you know, where does Star Wars come from? <laughs> We've actually got it right. There's these kind of big forces at play um, behind the big move. If, if you can read the story of Stalin, if you can read the story of Hitler, you can read the story of Pol Pot and think, oh, that's all explainable by a few people making some decisions. I just feel I'm dead up against the beasts of Daniel. I mean, these vast uh, forces that seem to be galvanising human beings to do awful things. Um, well, so, so across all of those zones, um, the, the house is being built and challenged. Does that make sense? It's not just my own soul and where I'm going. It's actually the entire cosmos and all of its levels, particularly taking what John Walton said. This is a political and social thing. It's not just a natural thing. <coughs> On the left-hand side, I have said God actually, as the Logos, is heavily involved in all of those. This is not an arm's-length creation. 
And each of those have got epic outcomes. And, and the epic outcomes are magnificently described with different languages, which I've kind of tried to stratify. The redemption one is one new humanity. That's Ephesians chapter 2. Create one new humanity. Uh, the social and political one would be the picture of the new Jerusalem to all the nations are coming to the new. This is a picture not of an individual soul being saved, a new social construct that is filled with light into which all the nations come. You know, in Revelation, they're all screaming in. The tree of life, life dominating nature, and finally the, you know, the great white throne. So there's a, there's a series of phenomenal pictures of the end of the house that clearly are far bigger than just my fate and my soul. I'm part of it, but part of a bigger game. Um, so in summary of this slide as to how the house metaphor th th these points are I think profound and enormously thought provoking and, and I'll unpack them more because Gregory was dominated by them Bentley Hart says his last thought on the earth as he passes away will be Gregory of Nyssa's great insight which is, only in the end will the beginning be clear. Only in the end of all things will the beginning be clear. God did not do a perfect creation. He began a work which is unfolding. So therefore, in contrast to where we began, heaven and earth are being built. They are not a static, complete, finished artefact or territory to which we go or don't go. They are being built. That's an exciting thought, isn't it? Because they're probably being built under our nose. And you're probably building it under your nose without realising. Jesus said that. It's so scary. You know, he said, if only you knew the finger of God. To the Pharisees, you didn't know God was right in front of you speaking to you. It's like, just a man. I can not believe him. I can... Criticizing, he said, you didn't know God was under your nose. Doing something. Second point, um, the scope of creation widens beyond nature, clearly to politics. Of course, as a younger Christian, I, I just had zero interest in history, politics. Um, the man who writes most about this, unfortunately a bit hard to read, is uh, Oliver O'Donovan. A great friend of Tom Wright's and a great writer, very you know, socio-political, the God of history. Probably Leslie Newbigin might be a bit more readable, but God is active in history everywhere. It's not like I think the, the evangelical gospel I had is God just interested in the individual souls. He's not interested in the broader corporate activities of humankind. Well, that's wrong. Incredibly importantly, God is inside the story as a participant from the word go. He's in the narrative. He's part of the narrative. He's one of the key actors in the story. And the end, I mean, in a rather warm phrase, John Walton said, the house must become a home. It's a simple domestic metaphor, but it's not bad. You think of a house, it's kind of there, but it's not warm, it's not lived in, and God wants us to warm the house so that all heaven becomes our hugest home. So... The house of God metaphor enlarges our view of the end game. Very importantly, I think this last point is that we are building the house, not just God. 
we are built, the Bible is very clear on that. The small decisions we make are building the house of God. Certainly I speculate, probably some of you do too, with the thought that we're bringing forward the house of God by building it. Okay, it's a bit breathless, isn't it? Well, there, enjoy this. So let's now go back to judgment. Let's go back to this word that we began with. I've kind of had an excursion into it. And let me, let me help you with this word. Um, this picture of the house of God being the cosmos actually gives us bigger questions about life and a different picture of judgment. <coughs> what it says is that love began the universe. Paul says that in Ephesians 1. The genesis of all things was divine grace. But the act of creation involves puzzles and conundrums far bigger than sin. Sin is part of them, but sin is not by any means the total territory. How can heaven dwell on earth is a huge epistemological, existential, not just moral question. How on earth can you have the eternal God participating in temporal matter? Now, that question is now, for Christians, the outcome of this will be glory. Glory is an outcome word in the New Testament of resurrection life, of that question being answered. How does heaven dwell with earth? The answer is glory. And the phenomenal Habakkuk 2.4, one of the great verses of the Bible, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea which I think is a picture of the resurrection life of Christ animating every atom in the universe. Um, now, what these once you start here, then you find that these questions are not just religious questions. They're not specialist religious questions. They're everybody's questions. They're everybody's questions about the imponderables of life and what the good life is. It's essentially a battle. Everyone lives in a battle between idealism and reality. Hope and constraints. We, we just, we're driving between these kind of worlds. It defines our life in, in so many ways. And these are the great philosophical questions. I won't go into them in detail, but they are vast questions between the one and the many. This is the question that dogs Every organisation, I mean, I've sold my 25-person firm to a 450,000-person firm. Do you think it's all the same for me? Mm -hmm. right, we're all about creativity, individually, individuality, do what we want. Let me tell you, a big company is about one, not many. There is one policy. There is one travel policy. Everything is fixed. And you're saying, but hang on, this context is different, and we're doing this here, and don't you understand it doesn't fit us? And, Huge angst around the one of the many. Indonesia, it's the one of the many. How do I be one country but many countries? You know, we just, every attempt, a family, <coughs> one family, but then my 14-year-old daughter doesn't seem to think so. Um, this is a battle we're, we're, in, we're in on many scales. And this is a heaven and earth battle. Uh, um, justice and mercy, they're, they're just at war with each other in the world we live in. Um, stability and change. How can change be good? 
So the questions of creation are vast. I, they now are questions like, you know, Netflix shows rather than, I think, Ron, you just said, I mean, Netflix shows are far more interesting than the sort of typical sermon on are you sinful or not. Anyone watch The Honourable Woman? It's worth watching. Um, High-minded Jewish young woman who inherits a multi-hundred million dollar fortune, which her father made by making munitions that were used to bomb the Palestinians. And um, she is trying to use that fortune to build peace with the Palestinians. Can you see straight away there's like, and she's so idealistic, it's called the Honourable Woman. It's a terrible tragedy. Because she's just walking between these two worlds. You watch that show, everybody in that show except one person who's a villain is actually a hero. And everyone who's a hero is actually a villain. Uh, and, and, and this is the, we're just kind of walking between big worlds we can't quite get right. Um, these are not, these are, these are creational questions. And what we come to now is certainly one of my you know, uh, favourite passages in the Bible. I just think it is a very defining passage, which is uh, Revelation. We find in Revelation chapters uh, 4 and 5, only a man can answer these questions. God can't. <clears throat> Like the eternal God, you know, the idea we've got of an omniscient God. The phrase omniscience, of course, the omniscient God is, it's, it's certainly not in the Bible in that form. But it's actually far too simplistic because I can't read it all out now given the time, but I think Revelation 4 and 5 define a lot of this story. Revelation 4 begins with creation. John, after the letters to the churches, this epic verse, a door opens in heaven. Man, wouldn't we all love to go through that door, right? I'm now walking into the door. And what he sees is in, in essence, he sees but doesn't see because there's no shape given to, the, to, the, to the, he who sits on the throne, but he sees the created order. The response of that at the end is the first of the great prayers of the church. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their existence. This is an epically powerful uh, metaphysical etiological statement. God began all things. In particular, existence. When you go back into creation, you're going back not into the mechanisms of creation like evolution. No, no, no. Why should there be a single atom? Existence is not necessary. It's God's free choice. And only he has existence in himself. So that's great. But as we just see, have seen, to, to have creation, we now have problems. Revelation 5, they see a scroll. The scroll's got tons of stuff written on it. One presumes, I presume, the scroll is the answer to all of those questions. All of those questions about creation. 
But this poignant, the angel proclaims, who is worthy to break open, who can read the book? And the answer is nobody. Now, the angels can't read it, and God is not, God, God can't read it. A man has to open the book. And then they see the line of the tribe of Judah prevails to open the book. So, so Jesus is presented as the one who has prevailed to open the book of creation in his humanity. And this couplet of these two chapters really establishes, I think, this enormous hope, which Bentley Hart puts in terms that I think are very powerful. Is it true that God will judge himself at the end of all things? He withdraws and says, well, that sounds bad, but God will reveal himself, which is the same. Why did you do this, God? What about the tsunami? What about my disease? What about, what about, what about, what about? God has a lot of questions to answer in that scroll. And so the end of all things is, in fact, the revelation of all things. That's what Gregory of said. Only in the end of all things will we understand the project. It's cool, isn't it? So the house will be understood at the end. Let's now take a, a oh, yes. bit of a, a rest. Is it is this a bit like a fire hose? Are everyone sort of sitting here quietly? Is that making sense? A bit like a fire hose? Yeah, I've lived with I live with the stuff like day and night for months, so it's not fair to sort of duff on everybody. <laughs> ah. Is that Barcelona? No, it's down the road. Oh, really? Yeah. So I thought let's let's uh, let's let's keep going, but let's take it into the modern world. This is, of course, Frank Gehry's building, um, the iconic architect. Tunisia's uh, business school. Um, I'm rather proud of that because, in a way, my wife is responsible for that quite directly. <laughs> Yeah, and the story behind it is UTS were building a business school and uh, they were a client of ours um, and they were going through a normal process to try and you know get normal architects and um, one of my, a lady that I brought out to Australia, Maureen Thurston, um, was actually working with them and uh, Maureen is a wonderful human being and Maureen's saw that they were doing this work and she said to initially Roy Green, who ran the business school, but then to the Chancellor, this was on a Thursday afternoon, would you be interested in Frank Geary building that for you? They said, you're kidding. She said, oh, well, if you're interested, I'll give Frank a call on the weekend and see what he's up to. Now, backstory is that Frank's an ice hockey nut and Maureen's husband, Rick, who's a great guy, um, is a was a, a great ice hockey. We won five Stanley Cups. Played with Wayne Gretzky, and Rick, and Frank are great because Frank's an ice hockey nut, and uh, they're great friends. So she rings up Frank on the weekend and says, "Frank, now I've got something to say to you. Frank's eighty. Uh, Frank, you've built something on every continent of the earth except Australia. 
So, you know, get yourself over here. Oh, Maureen. Yes, come on, Frank. Will you do it for me? Okay. So he goes back on Monday and says, well, Frank will do it. Um, he'll write you a one-page letter of agreement. And that's the end of it. No procurement. That's, that's it. So <laughs> by, uh, by a week later, Frank Gehry was the architect. And that's what resulted. Now... I want to... Uh, that that story's beat was uh, at the opening of the building. At the opening of the building, that story was told publicly by everybody. Um, yeah, well, you love it. Oh, no, you don't have to love it, but let's say it's different. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's quite something. Anyway, um, in terms of in terms of our life having effect, my dear wife, who can't be here tonight because she's not feeling that great, but she, uh, I'm going to say this publicly so, so she knows that the reason Maureen is in Australia, which is this how the story happens, goes back further because my dear wife thinks I don't do anything important. I just live this kind of ordinary life. I don't do anything important. So, um, and, and um, what happened was that I was in San Francisco giving a talk at a conference, another conference at another consultancy, and uh, these Maureen had heard about me years ago and asked if she could come and listen to me speak. So she came and she was in the back of the room, and my, the, the city owner said, Yeah, you can't ask him any questions. So that lasted until lunchtime. She went and had lunch with us. She said, I love the work you're doing. There's no one in the world doing anything. There's no one in America doing what you're doing. I'm going to come and work for you. So me and my mate was like, I'm in the hands of a bossy woman here. What do we do? I said, well, look, I don't know, but I'm not sure. Uh, um, but I'm, look, all I'm saying is I'm in America. I'm going on a holiday now. I was going skiing in Vail. Um, she said, I'm coming to Vail. So anyway, <laughs> so Anne and I are skiing in Vail, and then Maureen arrives and announces herself, hi, and she and Anne, bond. So I'm driving the car and they're sitting in the back plotting. And by the time the journey's finished, we have a new employee and a 457 visa. And so uh, so uh, Anne brought it to Australia. Very courageous decision, by the way. I'm, I'm trivialising it a bit. But how a small conversation can lead to things. You know, it's, it's a really good telltale story. Um, and we, we never quite know where. So, um, have we got the energy? I've still got more to go. I'm just going to plough on in because um, I'm going to explore the dynamics of architecture for you. Build, what's it like to build a house? Um, this is very important because it will reframe judgment. <laughs> architecture is an age-old human activity of design, and so we can, by introspection, look at the processes, and we can understand and infer the mechanics of a lot of the creativity of the cosmos. I think we have absolute license to do that because of the epic nature of what I've just been through. We are God's image on the earth. Now, creativity is a really interesting thing because uh, if you want to be creative, which is do what Frank Geary does, I mean, anyone can build a building that's been built before, just copy it. But if you want to do something differently anywhere in life, how do you do it? Well, it always begins in intent. Design always begins in intent, and intent is a mystery, because I can't see it, it's hard to express it. Um, it's inchoate, pre-verbal. By definition, intent is pre-verbal. And you know, believe you me, I work in that space, and getting intent out 
is enormously difficult. The, the problem with most organisations, most projects, is nobody knows why the hell we're doing it. Mm -hmm. I'm stop saying why the hell I think I'm just talking. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but we know that intent drives success to the degree there is a declared intent or not will essentially be one of the indicators of success of any project. It has to get expression. If it just remains as intent, it's just inside you. It's got to get out of you. And in terms of the creative process, that is the first sketch. Now, my dear friend Roy Green actually has framed what you're about to see next, but let me tell you, some of what uh, Frank Geary's earlier clients didn't feel like framing it when they got their first deliverable after two months' worth of work. This is the first deliverable for that building. <laughs> that is Frank's first outcome. Two or three months of work. Quarter million dollars. And uh, Roy has that framed. <laughs> it's actually a metaphor. It's a metaphor of a treehouse. It was the early conception of an idea that he never gave up, that will then have to go through obviously iterations to get firmed up and developed. But that, in a sense, that building is that drawing. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Um, and and um, so uh, any design grows. It grows from a DNA code. And eventually it'll get clear enough we can put materials around it and bricks and do it. So that's a rather mysterious process, but that's the process that we call design or creativity. Um, very now, importantly now, judgment as design drives the process. So this is a really um, subtle point. But every great artist or musician or novelist or thinker works in a mysterious way. But I'm about to unpack it for you. This is my life is thinking about these things, so this is not done casually. Throughout the process, there is one question being asked in the mind of the architect, which is, is it good? Is it good? And, and if you were to say, what do you mean by good? They would say, does it meet my intent? Good is the big, big word. You can clearly see the significance of my use of that word from Genesis 1. Now, what happens in the creative process is inside of me I've got stuff and I need to throw that stuff out of myself and create a sketch. So there is a duality going on between my mind and the external world. Stuff's getting out of my mind into the external world. It began as a thought. It's now a $70 million building. And it's an iteration between making and judging, making and judging, making and judging. One of my favourite lines ever about art was an artist who said, every work of art is a recovery from the first line. I draw a line, I say, I don't like that, it's not quite, I'm going to change, I'm going to do that. So that iteration drives the process. And the outcome is bliss, joy. So judgment, you know, a lot of people would ask what makes, say, Brett Whiteley a great artist? What makes Hemingway a great writer? People think, oh, it's their craft with words. 
Hemingway rewrote the last page of For Whom the Bell Tolls 38 times. How many? 40 something. 40 something, was it? Yeah. And somebody said to him, why is it to get it right? In other words, his genius was actually what he threw away. It was the judgment. Other people wouldn't have been satisfied. And, and so judgment is actually a, it's a positive process to drive to outcomes. To get the words right. To get, to get the words right. So that leads us now, if we were to take this back, to the idea of judgment as purification. I've now introduced an alternative concept of judgment. Not a punitive punishment concept, but I'm purifying to get it right. And I'm obviously implying if God is building the cosmos, he wants to get it good. Because it's, the work is continuing. Um, these verses are verses I've thought about. I think they're hugely important passages to think about. We don't have the time to go. Acts 17 is the climax to the great sermon um, on Mars Hill. It climaxes with the claim that Jesus' resurrection qualifies to him to judge the world. So that really doesn't say save the world. It's, and if we put in this purification, I'm going to finish the work, I think, it, I think that, that model of judgment really fits that concept. And the one down the bottom is equally important, 1 Corinthians 3, the fire will test every man's work. Paul has this great important passage where he talks about people being saved, being going, but what people build on what they've got is another matter as to, as to how much of it is going to be carried through into the eternal kingdom. Um, I'm now moving to back to where we began last week to finish, which is, I'm obviously pre presenting a view that God is building the cosmos, that, that there is a, a recurrent theme of judgment, and I'm saying that the theme of judgment as purification, judgment as improvement, is driving the process forward. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, what if we took that back to one of the most um, in infamous, I suppose, Passages in the New Testament, most of the sheep and goats, I quoted it last time, Matthew 25, I won't reread it again, but it's very much put forward by people as definitive sheep, goats, heaven, hell, Christian, non-Christian. <clears throat> last time I put it up, I gave you the new international version, which has the last verse as, <clears throat> then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Which Bentley Hart translates, these will go to the chastening of that age, but the just to the life of that age. Which you can see is a very different translation. The word eternal has got out and been replaced by the phrase of the age. And he's gone to chastening and life. And he's done it because he thinks it's a far more accurate. By the way, you know, I think in comparing Tom Wright and Bentley Hart, it's you know I love them both. I think they're both doing epic work on the planet. Um, <clears throat> it's worth remembering that Bentley uh, Tom Wright's skill is history. Bentley Hart's is languages and literature. Bentley Hart speaks six or eight languages and reads another four, including Sanskrit. Um, 
my friend Mark Strom, as I mentioned last time, saw an article in a literary journal. It's a Spanish journal. Bentley Hart wrote the article in Spanish, critiquing a Russian philosophy. So that gives you an idea. This guy's mind is just around languages epic. So when he argues for translations, he's actually um, on solid territory. Um, I've always, as I said last time, found the typical interpretation of Matthew 25, just, I mean, my background is literature, that's my strongest skill is literary criticism. I found it very distorted. Because here's how I'm meant to translate it as an evangelical Christian who believes in heaven and hell. <coughs> First, uh, sorry, I'm losing my voice a little bit. Let <coughs> me um, <coughs> just wait. <coughs> So firstly, um, they both begin with the Lord on his throne. Sorry. Um, that's how Matthew 25 begins. It's actually, I, I, I read that or translated that into judging all the souls of the earth. Um, div division into sheep and goats. The uh, subtext is the sheep are those who believe and the goats don't believe. Uh, the sheep go to heaven, the goats go to hell. Uh, so what this, what this story is about is no one can be saved by works, so believe and be saved. Where the thing becomes incredibly twisted is the, by far the bulk of the passage is about behaviour. Yes. It's all about behaviour I want to see on the earth, but... Calvinist doctrine tells me I can't do a single work to be saved. So Jesus must be actually telling me the whole story of the sheep merely to say nobody can do this. <coughs> nobody can love their neighbour, so therefore it really means it's proving to me that I have to believe to get into the sheep. And therefore I could extend it by saying, but once I'm a Christian then I'll start loving everybody and behave like the sheep. You see how twisted this all becoming? It's actually making the last verse, which is very minor, that kind of go to heaven, go to hell bits. The, the whole point of it is those last verses, not everything that goes before it. I have to twist and contort the meaning of everything else in it to make any sense. And then if I do end up saying, well, once I'm a Christian, I can actually, because I'm now, the Holy Spirit will be doing it, I am a sheep. So I am loving my neighbours myself. And the non-Christians are not loving their neighbours. Well, that is so naive. How many of you know wonderful non-Christians who love their neighbours and how many of you know Christians whose behaviour has let you down? So it's not working any which way. If you say what, if you, if you bring the judgement concept I've got, it reads like this, well, I'm judging the nations. That's how it begins. It, it really feels to me like this is a political, social, I've got Nebuchadnezzar before me, I've got anyone in any authority on the earth before me. <clears throat> and it says, I want the entire planet to be governed by love. The love of God, and what did Jesus say were the only two commandments? Love God and love your neighbour as yourself. He actually only talks about loving your neighbour. I want the entire our planet, given what we've just said about the house of God, I want this planet 
to be animated and driven by love at every point because that's why I created it. And I don't want it. It's enormous. It's a travesty of my character if it is not driven by love. That's the bulk of what he says. It's incredibly sobering. We could shout that from the, every rooftop. He goes further. What does he do? Does anyone know what they say to him? <clears throat> we never met you, God. Because he actually says, he doesn't say the judgment is not, you didn't love your neighbours, you didn't love me. So we, ne we never saw you. I just saw this jerk sitting in the front row and like, you know, we had an argument. Oh, did you? Well, he was God. So what, in fact, he's saying is I'm identifying with my creation everywhere you are tripping across my presence. Be very careful. Be very, very careful. I'm in it all. How sobering is this for us all? And I personally find, I don't find this terrifying. I just find it sobering. <laughs> and he says, essentially, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be great chastening because I'm getting this thing right. And uh, therefore, it's sort of God wants to see peace on earth and it will hold us all to account. Is I, I would summarise the last verse, and as one great commentator said, it's exhortational, not didactic. Very serious chastening or very serious reward. Your life matters. The, apparently, little things in life, the little words, phrase, they really matter because of what we've just talked about, the cosmos is yours. I just find the right-hand side more satisfying to the truth of Matthew 25. So... Um, Let's finish now. Uh, the last last slide. I want to return to this um, by way of summary. This picture of creation that we began with. Um, I've just made one change to the picture, which is the bottom zone, which is our zone, the zone we live in, is the only one where death applies. Because if you if you think about it, I ask the question: What happens when I, you know, to me when I die? Well, the answer is the rest of the world's going on. Like activity is happening. Everyone we've been talking about, Gregory, so they're all dead. We're still going on. So it's very egocentric to say, well, the entire question is about me. It reminds me of that wonderful Linus cartoon, was that one? Uh, Charlie Brown, you know, was there a world before I existed? <laughs> yeah, there's other stuff going on, and it continues to go on, both on the earth and beyond. Um, so um, where I'll go next week, and just I want to lay the thoughts in your mind is where I'm going with cosmic redemption is resurrection which is a phenomenal metaphor I'll pursue more which by the way Gregory of Nyssa was obsessed by and Augustine was casual with Augustine was mesmerised by hell and angels I mean the city of God is the most disappointing book Gregory wrote the phenomenal treatise on the resurrection of uh, 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 the book's called Resurrection of the Soul, 120 pages. It's dense. It's only 120 pages, but every every page you've got to stop and kind of go for a walk around the block after reading. Um, but he's he's absolutely mesmerized by glory, mesmerized by resurrection. So I think that's the end state. In the way that I have life now, it's a state. I've got life. 
That's not the question. The question is what are you going to do with it, Tony, in your decisions and in your actions? Can you pull that apart? I have a state which is called life and existence. What I do with it is what I build on it. So I'm actually now certainly playing, or my, my idea now is that there with, that I, I, I have, by and large, many reasons to declare that the end of all creation will be to share in this glory and declare that to my friends, whether they're <coughs> yet naming the name of Christ or not. I'll be going, you know, I've, I've been, when I get onto it next week, one, one question this, this, this bothers a lot of people, what does this do with, with evangelism? The answer is it makes it a whole lot better. Mm. Let me tell you, because we're just in the middle of that with lots of our friends. When I look at you and think, you're gods, you don't know it yet, but I want you to get on the boat, mm. I have a very different way of talking to you. So just a simple example, we had a wonderful friend out last week, they're our vintage, very intellectual from Silicon Valley, very burned by Christianity, very rejecting of it for good reasons, but they are some of the two of the most epic people I know of on the planet. You go back to the sheep and the goats. The love that this man and woman have for my wife and I, particularly through Anne's disease, is epic. I mean, Nancy couldn't wait to fly halfway across the world to spend time with her. Her emails twice a week and going through all the pain. It's very hard for me to think of this person as evil. Um, so, but, and, and of course, we have dialogue with them about our faith and they're intrigued. But the interesting thing, the most interesting thing, and they're very intelligent people, these are you know, very smart Silicon Valley people, was we just, I, I love saying grace. And they love it too. And Nancy said, I just want you to know, Tony, we love it. So, we hold hands and we say, great, we just include them. You're part of the cosmos and the creation. And they just, not preaching, not propositional tangling, just thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for our dear friends. And it's kind of contagious, like faith is contagious. And the most gorgeous thing my friend Daryl said to me, who calls me his brother, you know, I want to say a wonderful human being, he's the only person I know who plays at the top end of the consulting game has you know, had a lot to do with some of the biggest innovation, very, very mesmerising high-end work. And I'm in a meeting this size and he'll introduce me in America. He'll say, here's my brother, Tony. I love this man. There's no Australian, I don't know what junk is the word, love in a business. <laughs> I love this man. You know, it's absolutely heartfelt. There's not a trace of sarcasm in it. Um, so it's very hard to sort of say, look, I've got news for you. It's called hell. Um, I'm in because I'm, and you're out. Um, but but the, the faith is contagious. And Daryl said, said to me a beautiful thing. Uh, I said, can you mind if you say, about the second or third time, so we'll, we'll say, they say, can you say grace? Uh, or, or I said, grace. He said, that's a great word. That's a word for prayer, isn't it? That's a better word than prayer. Grace, I love that word. Uh, first of all, I thought, oh, yeah, what a nice synonym for prayer. Um, so I, I don't think this, um, uh, I'll say, talk, get on to that in the last talk, I don't think it does. Where does judgment fit? And I think that's the answer. I think judgment fits everywhere. Going back to this idea, God is actually evaluating. He's purifying and he's working. And what you'll find, which we'll talk about next time, is that Gregory will actually put a huge judgment zone in here, which became purgatory, but you know, there's judgment after death. By the way, Martin Luther played with the same idea. He, he played with, the rest of the reformers didn't pick it up, but he played with the same idea.
So that's kind of where we go. And when you're into that zone, you are seeing through a glass darkly. But nonetheless, the notion of judgment, the way I've talked about it, I find an enormously wonderful, rich, sobering call, you know, call to live a, a godly life and share it with everyone. So that'll do for tonight. Mm -hmm.